Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 114 of Drinks with Tony, where my guest is Daniel Tunnard, and we'll get to him in 54 seconds. It's a beautiful day in Los Angeles today, 75 degrees. December, it's that, it's that, that ice, it's the frost of a December winter in Los Angeles. December 2nd, Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific time, I'm teaching the free online creative writing workshop at the Public Library. Go to lapl.org to find out how to sign up for a free Zoom online writing workshop. lapl.org, December 2nd, 6 p.m. But wait, you want to dive even deeper into a writing project? I have great news. I'm teaching an eight-week beginning feature screenwriting workshop starting on January 25th. Go to writingworkshops.com to sign up. It's only $495. Again, writingworkshops.com. Search for Duchesne, an online beginning feature screenwriting to join us. We'll get an outline together for a feature film as well as a couple of scenes banged out, polished, workshopped, etc. Storytelling. It's the only thing keeping me sane in a pandemic, and we're lucky to have it, and it's there, and we can use it for material. Speaking of storytelling, this is a podcast about me yammering with storytellers. Hello, I'm Daniel Tanad, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show! Yeah! You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Daniel Tunnard. Oh, crap. I got to double check. Was that right? Okay. That's now we're back. Take two. <laughs> You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Daniel Tunnard. He's a competitive Scrabble player and the author of Collectiviation en Inglés, Que Tomo Todos los Colectivos de Buenos Aires that came out in 2013 and train spotting and los ferrocarriles in Argentinas in 2016. And his new novel is in English. It's called escapes out on, uh, out on unnamed press. Daniel. Hello. How bad did I screw up that Spanish? <laughs> You're actually the first person to pronounce my surname right this year. So that's you are forgiven for the rest. That's brilliant. Oh my God. Thank you so much. <laughs> I, I, I've been forgiven without even having to touch a rosary. <laughs> I like the, uh, that. Collectivization is, isn't even Spanish. It's kind of a Spanglish thing. It's supposed to be like collectivization. Because uh-huh. the word for us in Buenos Aires is colectivo. And so it's a, it's a very bad pun on that kind of in English. I, I regretted it as soon as the book came out. <laughs> well, there you go. I think regretting something when it comes out is no, is the case for everything. You know, it's yeah. when I, when my novel came out, I regretted the title immediately, and I, I still kind of regret it. And people are like, "No, it's a great title." I'm like, "No, it could have been better." I fucked what, what would you have called it otherwise? Oh God! See, now I'm on the spot. I thought this was my <laughs> show. <laughs> no, oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. Now I don't know because it's it's been so long and it's so identified with that title that. It's just that it's yeah. I, that's a good question. See it's now, a title. it's an eye-catching title. That, that's the most important thing. Well, I guess yeah. It, it, what's matters it what matters is the guts of the writing. That's that's the yeah, thing. Yeah. 
Um, oh, so I love that you wrote about, so I'm, I'm just a huge fan of public transportation. And so what, what got you into writing about uh, all the buses of Argentina and all the trains? Like, I can't wait. Is that going to be translated to English so I can like get my learn on too? I that was a ton like, of questions all at once. I'm really sorry. Choose what you like. <laughs> it's, it's a bit niche. Uh, there was some interest from Pushkin Press in the train book through the, uh, the Argentine Embassy in London. And they, they read it and they said, we like it, but it's not going to sell to non-Argentines, which I thought was fair enough because I, I wrote it pretty much for an Argentine public. Um, with the bus thing, um, it, it, was, it was funny because I, I was... Um, I was working on, on one other thing and I had lots of free time and I'd lived in Buenos Aires for, for about, about 10 years at the time. And I realized that I didn't know much of the city. You know, sometimes you, you live in the southern part of the city and you know about a quarter of it where you always hang out and stuff and work. And there was this whole part that I didn't know. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to find a way to uh, get to know the city more uh, and write a book about it? And around the same time, I'd read uh, A.J. Jacobs' book, uh, The Know-It-All, in which he reads all the Encyclopedia Britannica. And I, I really wanted to write that book, but it had already been written. So I, I was trying to look for something that would be similarly kind of time-consuming and, and stupid and kind of, what, what are you doing this for? It's a waste of time. Um, and, and I thought I'd, I'd take all the buses. And I took seven buses and, and gave up. This was in 2009. It was when the, uh, the avian flu crisis was going on. So it was like, what am I doing spending my time on public transport? And porteños ne never cover their mouth when they cough. So it's like, you're a terrible risk. And then a couple of years passed. And I mentioned on a, a, another interview that I'd once attempted to take all the colectivos in, in Buenos Aires. And it got a, a big response from different radio stations because apparently, well, the, the buses are very special to Argentines. They think they're these amazingly difficult things. And the idea of an English person, which in their imaginary is this kind of quaint, jolly gentleman with an umbrella kind of thing, taking all the, uh, the buses, they, they, they found that was a, a wonderful uh, contradiction <laughs> when it wasn't at all. And so I, I ended up uh, attempting it again, and I, and I did it that time in, in seven months. I took 140 buses, and, and the book came out, and, yeah, and that was okay. And so once I'd done that, I, I was always more interested in trains anyway. I was a train spotter when I was a kid. Um, and there's a very strong connection between the British and Argentina's uh, railway network that the British built most of it as part of their ongoing attempts to control the world in the 19th century. Um, and a lot of it was dismantled and destroyed. And I, I was interesting to see how much there was left. And there was a lot more than I, I imagined. And it was also an excuse just to take lots of really great train journeys and, and go on holiday every few weeks. So. So that, that, was, that was a lot of fun to write, a lot more fun than going around the city on buses for 12 hours every day. Um, and, and I, I yeah, and that came out and that was, that was fine. It's interesting because when we, when, we, when we go to cities and we delve into the public transit, we really realize how much culture shift there is between neighborhoods and just, and mm -hmm. that just, it, it's, you know, I, I'm, I have, I grew up in San Francisco. If you take buses to certain areas, you'd have ne you even if you grew up there you've never been there in your life and it's just a completely different culture and it's yeah. we we have we can we can internationally travel sometimes just by staying where we're at yeah yeah and and often often tourists i think kind of uh, stay in a comfort zone taking taxis and the the underground the tube because they're easier to 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 work and the buses are kind of more for locals but when you actually take a bus and you go somewhere you get lost 
then it's a whole different, <laughs> maybe you shit yourself as well because it's like, oh my God, where am I? I'm lost. So that, that's a whole different kind of experience which you have to kind of encourage people to <laughs> put themselves into. Where do you live in Argentina? I live in Concepcion del Uruguay, which is, uh, it's on the Uruguay River, which is where it gets its name, gets its name from. It's about it's... 200 miles north of uh, Buenos Aires. Oh, okay. What was your I decision? I lived in Buenos Aires for 16 years. You've been there 16? Oh, okay. Six... I, I lived in Buenos Aires for 16 years. Okay. And we've been here for, for five years, and next year we're moving to England, which we, we've had enough. Oh, really? Okay, so what was your decision to move to Argentina? What what was uh what what did what did you like you're like yeah that's the place i'm gonna i'm gonna be there um i did my i did, I did spanish university and i went to montevideo for um uh, a few months to study and whilst i was there i, I passed through buenos aires and i met a woman and then i graduated and didn't know what to do with my life so i thought ah, let's get to buenos aires and see for three months and see what happens and i ended up staying there and uh, so it was about a woman yeah, it was basically a woman. I, I try, I try, I try not to say it was because I divorced her later. Oh, okay, got it. I'm uh, divorced to too. Try to play down her influence. It was because of Borges. No, it wasn't. <laughs> I'm divorced too, so that's why we have the same wrinkles in our forehead. I'm. I'm it's like, <laughs> they, I knew, I knew it was. I, but I'm remarried, so I have more. I have more wrinkles. <laughs> the um, and and you were you're talking about the just for a second. I list. Uh, you were saying. The Argentines' um, perceptions of a of a Brit in their in their country. They, do they have like? Is there kind of a, um, a expectation of you being British? So they're expecting something about you. Yeah, especially in Buenos Aires. When when I first arrived, I I, I was oblivious to this. I thought it would all be hostility because of the the South American the, the South Atlantic conflict. Um, but the, the people in Buenos Aires, especially in certain kind of middle class, upper middle class areas where teaching English, I, I was teaching English at a, a, a very posh institute and they, they all loved the English people and they all expected them to behave in certain ways like being punctual. And I was terribly late in the first years there. I'm not now, of course, I, I've learned to be English, but it, uh, there, there were always kind of expectations that they had about English people. And, and I was always letting down these expectations by being a real English person. And not they, they think English people have tea at 5 p.m. Uh, every every day. I don't know. We, we just drink tea all the time. We would start drinking beer at five o'clock usually. Yeah, yeah. Five o'clock's for booze. Come on. Yeah, yeah. And it's gone dark. <laughs> it's cold. Oh, drink tea. Yeah. So, um, so you learned Spanish in school and then being immersed in Argentina. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I did four years at university and then Argentina, and then I started working as a translator in. After about three years in Argentina, that and that's got to be fun. I so I I know little Spanish. I know enough to get through restaurants and to find bathrooms, just because of living in California, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. And um, but uh, I didn't realize how different the dialects are, because because Spanish is spoken all over the place. But it could be. I mean, someone from Colombia is not going to understand someone from another region, maybe in Me in Mexico, there because there's going to be some. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not a. I'm, I didn't study this, but it seems like there would be, there could be miscommunication. Yeah, it's especially uh, for foreigners who who have learned Spanish, say in, in the USA or in Mexico, and when they come to to, Arge to Argentina, it's it's it feels like a different language at first because of the pronunciation and the tone and the, the vocabulary and stuff. 
I, I, I found myself that whenever I meet Cubans, I, I can't understand a, a word they're saying because they're, they're, they're kind of different. They're, 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 there's a map somewhere, where these wonderful maps people have, of countries that can't understand each other in Spanish because they're so disparate. Um, Chile is another case. Chile is just next door, but it's because they're separated by the Andes. They, can, they have a completely different, different accent. Yeah, it's funny. And then, and then you just realize, oh, wait, if I hear uh, dialects in English from like the deep south or certain areas of Australia um, or even, you know, Scottish, sometimes I got to yeah. put if I'm watching a movie and it's in English, but it's a Scottish production, I have to put on the subtitles. Yeah. And, and it all kind of makes sense when I, I figure it out that way. I came yeah. I came to it backwards. All the more so when it's the kind of thing where there's a lot of slang and there's a lot of kind of street talk and that kind of thing. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> The street talk is the most fun to learn. I want to learn all. I, I want to learn all the swear words and slang right away. <laughs> but but then you know, back when you travel, you go to other countries and you're like, oh, tell me the swear words, and then you say one, you don't realize just how <laughs> how grave that swear word is, and you might get your butt kicked, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and suddenly, suddenly, women are covering their ears, going, "Oh, you can't say that word." <laughs> I know. Yeah. I, I was learning Japanese, and the um, some kids taught me to say "baka," "baka," and I said it to a Japanese woman, and she's like. Well, she nearly started crying. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. What does that mean? I don't know. I think wow. it's pig or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, to all the Japanese ladies out there, baka to you. <laughs> but it's, it's it's interesting in languages how um, some languages have far more offensive words than than others. English being a particular case in point because we have some very strong words that are completely taboo and you can't say them. Uh, and in, in fact, in North American Scrabble, they, they banned the players from, from using these words. This was in the, the press this, this year. Whereas in, I was trying to think in Spanish, if, they, if we had a similar word that causes much offense, and there, there really isn't anything. It, it varies very much from one region to another. But nobody could come up with a word that was as offensive as the, the, the main offensive words in, in English. Huh. And, I, and I wonder how other, how other languages compare to that, where the other languages have even more offensive words. Everyone's covering their ears and crying. Right, exactly. Languages where nothing's offensive. Yeah, it's like you know, oh, that word is blasphemous and means sodomy. You know, if you find both of those, then then you got the right. Or (laughs) it's you. How do you get into? How do you become a competitive Scrabble player? That sounds like so much fun. That 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 was uh, very 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 satisfying. I I I love because because I'd come from writing two nonfiction books which involved me immersing myself in in the world and doing all the traveling to write the book it was a great it was great fun to then write a novel by immersing myself in in another world and getting and learning about it uh, firsthand uh, my my wife's aunt is friends with a former world champion from Argentina called Claudia Amaral she was champion in 2004 uh, who is also from here in Concepcion she lives in Buenos Aires so I went to see her in 2015 when I was just starting to think about writing this book and I played three games against her and she completely thrashed me. It was just embarrassing. I think mean, by the third game, she was just being polite and saying, come on, let's, let's get you out of here. Uh, and I didn't touch a Scrabble board for, for nine months after that. Um, but she told me about how they had regular tournaments in Buenos Aires uh, every, every month and, and I was welcome to, to go and join in. So I, when I started trying to write the novel, I thought, I really need to go and play a couple, just a couple of uh, competitive Scrabble games to get a feel for it. And, and, I, and I went along and I, I lost nearly all, all the games on the first day. And I went back the next month and I, I won three games and I went up the division and then I'm winning games and stuff. And it was, it was really exciting and, and a lot of fun. And I realized this is, this is what I was made to do. This is what I was supposed to do. 
Um, so, and, and so that became, that, that took over from, from writing the novel. I didn't write anything for ages because I was just playing Scrabble and learning all these different word lists. Instead of, I have, I'd have like loads and loads of notebooks like this where you just have the, all these different words that you don't understand what they mean, but you, you memorize them and things like that. Oh, that's interesting. And also memorizing the, um, like, you know, if you get the Q in there and the Zs, like you probably know every word that has a Q and a Z in it for the high, for the high scores, like where to place those. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I'm, I'm very bad with the Zs. I should, I should <laughs> study more. I keep forgetting them, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of that kind of thing of uh, remembering the, the key words and stuff. Yeah. I was going to ask you what came first with the novel was it was it scrabble or was the or was it the novel and then you're like scrabble's part of this well i um i was we were playing scrabble in in Degre in the tigre delta where the novel is set in about 2009 and i had this idea how about a novel where there's two people playing a game of scrabble and at the end of each chapter there's a word that they play on the board which represents what they were talking about in that in that no <clears throat> in the novel uh, and then I read uh, Word, Freak by, Word Freak by Stefan Fatsis, which is about his experience as a journalist uh, learning to be a Scrabble player. It's a nonfiction book, which is very good about Scrabble, which inspired a lot of people to take up competitive Scrabble as well. Um, and then I did nothing because I I, somebody told me to take all the buses in Buenos Aires. And so I thought that would be a good idea. And then I took all the trains and then we moved here. And I read a book about moving here and building a house. So I was constantly kind of putting off the Scrabble novel, because I didn't know how to write it. I was kind of thinking, well, I know this happens and this happens, but what happens in the middle, which is always the case, like, you've got to fill in 200 pages here in the middle. Um, and, and so I, as I started to play, I started writing down a few ideas about you know, situations and things that could happen in the Scrabble world. And eventually I had enough notes to start writing it. And, I, and then I just started writing it. And I realized that once you start writing something, all of these new ideas suddenly come out and you go off in direction. And you think, whoa, this is surprising. You know, I've been trying to plan it so much beforehand that, you know, it was, it was more liberating to just sit down and write it and, and get it done. And kind of just, and kind of just let those, I just let it go and kind of pulling back on the planning and just going, wait a second, this, the story's going this way. I'm going to stay on track with that. Yeah. Also, um, I, I first planned out the scrubber board that you see at the end of each chapter. Um, so that I used all the letters that were valid in Spanish and English and so that they were all relevant words that I could work into a story. And sometimes I would come across a word like dirigible, which is a word for an airship. And I thought, oh, oh, what if there's what if there's an airship in this novel? And so that whole idea of the Scraffy having flying around in airships came about just because I wanted to use the word dirigible in this imaginary Scrabble game I was playing. And so there are lots of little things like that as well, where it was just completely forced by the, this, um, this structure that I was trying to create around the, the novel, which led to ideas for stuff. And then sometimes other words led me down a complete blind alley where I tried to work something in which wasn't working at all, you know. What, what, was, the, what was the worst blind alley you went down? What, what, was, what was the word that was just absolutely, <laughs> like you wanted it in there, but the, but the storyline would have been absolutely terrible? I can't, I can't. There, there were lots of... Um, I made, I made like a list of 7,000 words of, of words that are val valid in English and Spanish. And so I go through lots of them. There was like, a, there was one which was in there for a while, which was an old, an old coin. 
uh, an old Spanish coin, which is valid in English and Spanish. And I, I tried to write a story about some old coin or some kind of thing. This is really forcing it down. Just stop, stop messing about like this. You know. but there, there were lots of, I, I wiped most of them from my memory because it was just like, oh, my God, what are we doing here? <laughs> You're like, I'm turning in the manuscript. Let's get a clean slate. I don't need to remember every, uh, every angle that I did. Yeah. Can you make money being a competitive Scrabble player? Is that like a gig? You can in English. Um, in Spanish, the, the world the, the world number one gets three thousand dollars, which okay, maybe maybe in Argentina at the moment you can get by three thousand dollars a year, but it's not much of an existence. Um, yeah. In English, you may have heard of the best player, who is um, Nigel Richards, who is originally from New Zealand. He lives in Malaysia. He plays in in French as well. There are rumors he's going to start playing in Spanish, and everyone's worried about this. Um, but he makes maybe $50,000 for winning the, the Worlds or the US uh, Open. And then, you know, that's enough to live off for a year in, in Malaysia. Uh, and so he makes a living from it. There, there may be a few others in, in the English language Scrabble who, who make a living from it. But for, for most other people, it's just a great expense and frustration. <laughs> But you still do it because one time, one time you win a game and you're like, yes, that was that was worth the $10,000 I spent. In it. Well, do you have to spend it in uh, fees or is it also you have to spend it in travel? and? Like... Yeah, it's mostly travel and then the hotel and you, you, you pay an entrance fee of like $100 for the tournament and then all these other extras and stuff. And so that, that's mostly the, the expense. Yeah. And, and so you, and you had to stop when COVID started. Yeah, yeah. So as soon as that's we we all stop playing in like March because we play in very enclosed spaces, then there's a lot of people who are over sixty as well and higher risk and and that kind of thing. Uh, and so there was there was no real uh, debate about it. It was like, yeah, we we can't do this. And yeah. also, Argentina has had a very strong, a very strict lockdown where you couldn't have public meetings indoors for for a long time. Um, but it's the same. I think it's the same in the in the English world as well. There's, there's been very little scrabble. You can play outside if you have somewhere outside where you can play now. Then some people are playing, but it's still kind of quite. But there's a lot online as well. A lot of people play online, and so the, that transitioned fairly smoothly. Now playing online is there? Uh, is there? Uh, do they feel like there's a risk of cheating on that? Yeah, because... they all fucking cheat. I hate them. I stopped doing it. I quit yeah. playing on. Yeah, yeah. It's like people are just saying, yeah, yeah. I use the there's a there's a program called Anagramador where you put in your letters and it tells you what word you've got. Yeah. And everyone so blatantly uses it. You're playing somebody who's like in the third division and you beat her all the time in real life, and then she goes and puts this amazing eight letter word down. And you think, oh come on, this is so stupid. I'm not doing anything. So I, I had a tantrum and stopped playing online. Yeah, because that because uh, you'd have to be in the in the room with the people. Because then yeah. they can't use those devices. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know how they, they, they... There are some... They are in the US, in the US, they did some online uh, tournaments. I'm not sure what, what they did to, to block them from... Uh, or whether they had cameras or something. That, but if, if you have enough technology, I think you can, you can get around it. But. Oh, okay. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> I'm going to... Go ahead. Mostly, it's seen as a, as like a stopgap. No one, no one, people really want to be playing in person and going to the tournaments and socializing and all that element. So, right, yeah. and that's the fun part is the socializing. Not, yeah, <laughs> having, having grandmothers show me photographs of their of their grandchildren and, and things like that. Yeah, so so there's so what is the majority of the people who are in there? They're older. 
Yeah, in, in the Buenos Aires um, club, which I think is what the biggest uh, the biggest one in the world, is about 110 players usually. I think I'm the youngest one there, and I'm 44. Huh. And then there were there are about maybe 20 people under 60, and the rest are 60 to 93. I think is the oldest the oldest player. But she looks about 70. She looks great. Yeah, 90, 93 is the new 70, right? It is. That's what she says. Yeah. <laughs> what um. Did, did any of these uh, did the players that you have do do they know you have a book out or are they aware that they that you have a novel out based on uh, yeah 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 I don't think any of them have, one one person's bought it because he he speaks some English but most, most people don't speak much English and so they're waiting for the the translation to come out which will hopefully be be next year there's already been some interest in that um, but yeah they, they know that I've written another book and they're they're eager to read it as, as soon as it's in a, a language they understand <laughs> so. yeah cool. Or do they ask you, am I in it? Am I in it? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, the, the, the main character of Pelusa in the Scrapia is, is based on a woman called Pelusa from the Buenos Aires Club. So I'm looking forward to seeing her after she's read it. I, I'll have left the country by then, fortunately. So right, yeah. <laughs> she'll be able to hit me with a handbag, <laughs> which is definitely going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, so you're planning on moving back to uh, the UK, yeah? Yeah, yeah, we've we've reached a stage where well, we just we, we like the UK. Every time we go back to the UK, we think, hey, could we could we live here? Is that possible? And it was quite difficult because of the because of the, the spouse visa. Um, it's not in in other countries. If you're married to somebody from there, then you just go over and that's it, and you start working and whatever. And with the UK, it's it's quite expensive and quite uh, strict. And so we're we're going through that at the moment. Um, but yeah, we're going to move over to we're going to move to Manchester. I'm trying to get into more writing for TV jobs kind of things. Um, and we'll see what happens. That sounds fun. Have you written for TV before? I, I did um, in about 2008. I, I got a, a dream job writing for a, a Fox anim animated sitcom called The Company, which was produced in Argentina by a production company in, in Buenos Aires. And I was the main writer. And I, was also, I also voiced the main character and a couple of other people. I made great money and stuff. Um, but it, it, the, the, the producer was, the director was the kind of person who has a great idea and then writes out a whole script. And then he, about three weeks later, he'd say, no, this is a terrible idea. We're doing this again. And so he'd write another script. And so there'd be all these delays. And then the financial crisis struck in Europe, which was funding the whole thing. And they said, yeah, we're, we're shelving this. This is, this is over. But for a year and a half, that was, that was, uh, that was my gig. And then I wrote for I wrote for MTV. I wrote for some of their VJ shows where you just write, "Hi, this is Daniel, and you're watching MTV. Here's some shit singer for the kids <laughs> like." And I, I wrote all those scripts, and that was soul destroying. So I, I vowed I vowed never to write for TV again after that, and that that vow lasted for about seven years. And now I'm like, yeah, I'd like to write for TV. Again. Well, is that, I mean, writing for MTV VJs just probably seems more soul sucking than creative. Yeah, it wasn't very. I, I try and do creative stuff, and they say, "No, don't, don't, don't do jokes. Don't, don't do that." <laughs> you know, yeah, I yeah. Just, kind of just follow a formula and run out, run out of crap to say <laughs> after about five songs. And now it was so. Some people do. But I, I read the scripts of my my predecessor, who is really into writing this shit, and she was. And I was like, "Oh, this is really good. You, you really make it come alive." And I, I couldn't do it. It was awful. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, and and so you do voice acting as well. I did. I, when I lived in Buenos Aires, because I'm, I'm a native English speaker, there sometimes be different gigs and adverts and things, and they'd phone up the 
four or five English voice actors who we all knew each other and we go along and see if we could get some money out of this because it's quite well paid. Um, and, and so I, I did a few, a few things there, but I, I, I didn't really have a, a reel like other voice actors do who really kind of get into it and have their own studio at home and that kind of thing. And also I moved here and so I kind of missed out on that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, being in Los Angeles, I've taken voiceover classes because uh-huh. um, I, 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 I teach uh, at UCLA Extension and they give me free classes every quarter, you know, a comp class. So I took voiceover classes and stuff and it's just, it's hard. It's a lot harder than people think to really like do it well. I, yeah, yeah. It's it's fun as well. I I I enjoyed the uh, the challenges of that. I also did things. That, that there's a really funny one which is for um, English English language tapes, like for learning English, which were always in the sudden tone of voice saying, "Tommy, will you be going to school this afternoon at three o'clock?" <laughs> and, and, and we'd always take the piss out of these. And I got I got a job doing one of these English language courses, and that was that was great fun <laughs> doing this stupid English language learning voice. Yeah, it's to to make it uh it, to make something so it have so much intent, but it's just a simple phrase. Is that the <laughs> has to be very clear so that the student can pick out the answer from the multiple choice question? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So did the did the Fox show? Did it ever air, or was it? No, what, it never got on no, air. We, we, oh we, man, we wrote scripts. We had we had a contract to do like 10, 10 episodes. I think we wrote scripts for five or six. There were some brilliant ones. There, there was the the company was real, was run. It was this huge kind of bureaucratic Argentine building, uh, and it was run by this woman called Lydia. My favorite episode was the the paperization, which is like computerization but in reverse. She hated computers and she wanted everything to be printed out. Uh, so we just had these great piles of paper all over the place, and they threw the, the computers out of the window. And then of course there was a big fire because who knew who knew paper was so flammable. Um, <laughs> And we, we, we had some brilliant uh, jokes and fun. And they were also animated. We had one or two or three episodes were animated. And then it always kind of stopped and was like, oh, that was fun. Never mind. It sounds like yeah. fun. I, I'm, I'm a paper guy. I don't know. I don't know. Like when I'm writing a first draft, it has to be on legal pads. And then uh-huh. I come home and I transcribe it in. Well, this was how I used to work before COVID. And then I would print everything out and I would take off and get out of my house and edit outside type in all the edits i how how did what what's that i feel like that's a weird laborious process but for some odd reason that's that's how i've been doing stuff. No, i think a lot of people do that i i'm, I'm mostly on the computer because mm-hmm. um i like typing <laughs> this is not i'm not i'm not a writer i write around a typist and when mm-hmm. i'm translating i'm thinking this is fun typing this <laughs> and then once i this is how i started writing the first time i started writing in 2006 i've been on a very long translation job for about a month and when I finished, I really missed the action of typing. So I thought, I'm going to type some more. What can I type? And I started writing uh, what was the first novel and it never came to anything. Um, oh, so yeah, I, 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 go through, I go through phases as well. So sometimes I'm more paper and sometimes I'm more um, computer. But I, I feel like I could never write a whole novel on paper. I feel like it has to be saved somewhere. I'd be worried that, you know, something would happen to it. <laughs> yeah. And I can't write in public either. I know a lot of people go to bars and... And cafes and stuff and sit with their, their earphones and their computers and I, I i just need to be in silence and not disrupted by anybody and also oh. if, if i go to a bar or a cafe i'm going to need to go to the toilet after about 20 minutes and that's just very you know uncomfortable it's like we watch my computer i'm going to the toilet <laughs> i yeah i don't i don't like um because i'm not a guy that likes to bring a laptop to a bar or a cafe i just mm. feel that goes against my nature on every level i think that's why i just bring paper because I just, 
everyone else is sitting there. I'm like, you know, you're not right. I want to walk around and go, you know, you're not writing anything good. You know, you're not writing anything good. <laughs> you look really serious, but trust me, it's not good. Um, but maybe that's my own insecurities. So yeah, yeah. it's my, I'm, I'm projecting, <laughs> I'm projecting my own problems. Yeah. You were a trans, so you were a translator before you dove into writing? Yeah, I'm still a translator. I've been translating since 2002. And I started writing in about 2006. Please tell me uh, it was because you were translating books that were terrible and you're like, I could do way <laughs> better than this. I've done, I've done very little literary translation. I do mostly, um, I do a lot of scripts actually. And, and very, very often I'm translating scripts thinking, oh my God, how did these people get jobs writing this shit? <laughs> Give me a job. You know? And every time I send them a translation, I want to write, because I've become friendly with the, one of the production companies and the people that work there. I want to write to them and say, this is terrible writing. Give me a job. I don't know whether she's one of the writers as well. And so I can't say anything. <laughs> right. That, that, yeah. That horrible position where you're just going, how it blows my mind when I see like, when I've seen um, like TV scripts and stuff where, and, and it's, you like see it on paper and then like, you know, after the director and the actors and everyone put it together and then it looks good. But at the same yeah, yeah. time, it's still a crap script. And then the actors are taking it to a new level. You see the director takes it to a new level, the editor. And you're like, how does that script get through? How are these? There was, I was, I was on, um, I was shadowing a friend of mine on his show and there was two pages where there was no conflict. And I called it, I was like, why is there two pages of the, of the agreeables? These are all these, all they're doing is agreeing with each other. There's nothing here. So that was the running joke through that uh, episode was like, oh, and on the, on the agreeable scene. And it's just like, yeah, but yeah. they couldn't change it. Cause that was the writer and the show creator that was there. It's just like, Oh, all right. Yeah. yeah. I, I did this one show, which I, I shouldn't name because it's an ongoing client, but it was a really big show, uh, 10 episodes. And it was going to be like a, a big thing. And when I was translating the script, I, I, I was always thinking, this is, this is quite bad. I think this is quite bad. And my, my wife would read bits of it because um, I had to do bits into Spanish. And she said, yeah, it is bad, but it's a script. So when it gets made into a TV program, you'll see it's really good. And then we, we saw the TV program and it was terrible. They, 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 they casted the worst actress in the world who's made of wood. And then everything was like, oh, my God, my name's on this. <laughs> Scratch it off. You know. But it was really, it was really bad. And... Uh, there you go. I'm just going to turn the light on. Hang a second. Sure, yeah. It's dark now in Daniel Tunnard's room, and now the light has come on. That's better. The sun's going down here. Wait, what time is it in Argentina right now? It's about half past seven. Oh, okay. We're half past so, two here. Yeah, yeah. Los Angeles. Oh, so you're like five hours. I didn't know it was that, it was that far. Yeah, we're five hours, five hours ahead of you and three hours behind the, the UK at the moment. Right, okay, huh. I should look at a globe more often, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, and then, and then, so when when you first started writing, you did, it was you were like more more interested in nonfiction and just like moving in that way, or what, were you working on short stories and creative writing all along? Um, no, I was always kind of in, uh, interested in both. The, the first novel I wrote was really a memoir about my divorce and my parents' divorce and. Um, Argentine meaning of the Argentine women and, and that was a comedy um, <laughs> and, and my, my mum said that if I published it she would sue me and so I, oh my I, God. Didn't, I didn't publish that <laughs> you let, did you let her read it or did she just know yeah, the subject matter? I, no I, I posted stuff on the blog and when you post something on, on your blog you know that five people are going to read it 
but your mum thinks this is on the internet. The whole world is reading this now, if only. Uh, and so she was very angry with me for about 15 years. Wow. <laughs> no. Um, she would have been angry with me anyways. Um, so, th- But also it wasn't very good. I realised that a lot of people could be offended. If, you know, if you're right about having your relationship with different people and having sex with different people, then it's not, it's not very nice to, to publish that unless you're a very particular kind of personality. So I shied away from that. You should never publish your first novel anyway. That was just a practice thing. Exactly. And, people, yeah, people yeah. don't, uh, I think a lot of people don't realize when a, when a, when your first novel comes out, it's actually not the first novel you wrote. We kind of yeah. learn how to write a novel by writing bad novels. Yeah. 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 So then, then I wrote a novel about a, um, a, a screenwriter who's trying to write a biopic for a Freddie Mercury, uh, a Freddie uh-huh. Mercury biopic. Um, and uh, he keeps getting into problems with the production and that goes into production hell and then brian may brian may the guitarist from queen appears in his uh, wardrobe and he has a time machine but the time machine doesn't work and so he just kind of hangs around this guy's house playing guitar and telling him anecdotes which are clearly false and it, it was a really silly novel and uh, no one published it <laughs> but also also i have this thing when when i finish writing a book i've already gone off it <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm already doubting it and so i send it to like three or four agents or publishers and they all say, yeah, this is not for us. And so I, I take that as a message. Yeah, this, this is no good. And with Escapes, I send it to three or four publishers. And two right back saying, yeah, we like this. And I go, yes, finally. Because <laughs> I'm not going to send it to anyone else. Wow. It's you really- only send it to like four or five? Yeah, yeah. Um, I imagine I would have sent it to more. But I sent it, I sent it to, to uh, like five independents and a couple of agents. Uh, and then waited. You know, so I sent it in, in March. And Chris wrote back to me from uh, um, from unnamed press in I think July, June, June. Um, so otherwise, I would have you know hauled myself to the computer. And I, I really hate emailing people that I don't know to ask them for stuff. And especially when it's like, please, please, will you publish my novel? Please, it's nice. And I, I really hate putting myself through the whole process. Um, so it was really nice when uh, <laughs> to get something back. You know, it's a moment we all dream of as well as, as writers, because I was I, I was lying on the on the sofa on, on, on a Sunday night and I was kind of looking at my phone and look at the email and say, why are you looking at your email on a Sunday night? It's just going to be something stressful. There's not going to be anything there. And I go on and it's Chris Heiser from Unnamed Press saying, hey, we liked your novel. Let's have a phone call. I'm like, Whoa, what's going on? <laughs> so that's why you should always look at your phone all the time in case something's <laughs> happened. Especially when you have quiet time with your wife. Just look at your phone all the time. Well, she's looking at hers. <laughs> Man, I just can't believe that you only because I mean, well, I believe it, but like I know people who submit to like fifty, you know, they'll, they'll put it out to like a bunch of agents and publishers, and and then they finally yeah. get some traction. But yeah, um, they're, they're, they're doing it properly. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I'm just kind of <clears throat> I'm just defeatist. I, I sent it to three people. And I think no, no one likes it. Stop it. Wow. Write something else. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, and, and, and it's, that's something that I think a lot of writers are trying to get over is because with, it really sucks to sell ourselves. I just, yeah. I hate the whole, you know, oh, please, you know, I don't want to beg you to read this. I just want you, I just, if it's good, fine. Just, if it's not, don't talk to me. And you just kind of wish people would just come to us just be like, just, just, yeah, yeah. Just look at it on the wall. And then if you don't want it, it's fine. Please say no. If you don't want it, that, that whole <laughs> I think we, I think as writers, we should all come to an agreement to be like Elena Ferrante and say we're going to write under pseudonyms and we're not going to do 
any publicity and all all riders agreed to do that and then we're all on the same level footing and we don't have to do anything <laughs> we're just like putting out jokes and i like uh, that a lot and, you know, yeah <laughs> that would level the playing field absolutely it, it's like having a minimum wage for uh, a maximum wage for football you agree on that and there's, there's no more of that competition i'd like to take that <laughs> a step further no more book covers just the title and we don't get to choose the font <laughs> Sometimes book covers are good. People, people like book covers. Yeah, yeah. No, but just to but really funny, level it out, you know, where that, if, that books writing... didn't have, if books didn't have covers, you'd lose like 30% of sales because a lot of people are just buying books because they look pretty. <laughs> you know, so you have, to, you have to have something. Unless they're like the, the NRF, you know, the French books, which have just have like the, the title and the, uh, the NRF symbol. Oh, I've never seen and those. That's it. Oh, they're beautiful. Have I, got, have I got some here? Let me, I'll, I'll tell you what, hang on. <laughs> okay. Daniel's going to his bookshelf right now to show me the book and he's coming back. <laughs> this is, uh, this is one. I, I bought this when I, when I was living in, in Brussels. This is Le Sursi oh, okay. by uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. Yeah. All, all, all NRF books are basically like this. You just got the name of the, the author and the, the title. And Wait, but, those, but those are essentially classics though, right? That's like must read literature. No, but they still do this. You, you still, you still find them, uh, I think they've modernized in some, the folios as well are quite good. But yeah, there's, you know, it's, it's France, you know, they're, they're like, oh, we'll make a book. We're going to put the name of the author on it. And right. you don't want pictures. You're an adult. <laughs> exactly. And they have a, and they smoke and they smoke cigarettes between the middle finger and the ring finger. Right. So that's, you know, the French. <laughs> yeah. I've seen Emily in Paris. So I, I know the French. You've seen Emily. No, I saw, I, we saw two episodes to see how bad it was. And my, oh, oh, is that the new one on on Netflix? Oh, okay. Was it bad? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, there's a general consensus that it's quite bad. But sometimes something's so bad you still watch it because it's it's funny. But this, that didn't even do that. Normally, I can get my wife to watch any old shit, and she said, "No, we're not watching this. This is this is a Yankees being shit in Paris. <laughs> we're not going to watch this." And then we watch some other shit. <laughs> you know what? You know what? One of the weird things. So the, you know, the weird things that have happened since COVID. One of the uh, I got into Veronica Mars. Have you ever seen that TV show, Veronica Mars? Oh, it rings a bell. I don't think I've seen it. No. Yeah, it's all. It's it's just it's it's okay. It's not great, but I'm totally <laughs> into it. And um, it's almost like I've I'm like through pandemic and through like the horrors we see going on. I need comfort food and I'm, and I see my entertainment kind of skewing a little bit. It's like, I used to watch a lot more violent uh, movies and TV shows. And now if there's too much yeah. violence, I'm kind of going, I need a candy bar. I don't need, you know, it, <laughs> it's so strange. And then it makes me uh, wonder what is going to be uh, consumed like two or three years from now is, is it, is, yeah. is are, are things going to lighten up on storytelling or are they going to dig in harder? I, I can't see disaster disaster films doing very well after this. Oh, pandemic, pandemic films. <laughs> I know. It's, yeah. um, and what, uh, I, got, I got into Patriot during the, the pandemic. Oh my God. Is that great? Yeah. But it was but, depressing as well. Cause I was yeah. watching it like, I haven't seen anybody for ages. And it's about this, the guy who's depressed and i was i had to stop watching it because i was like oh this is too much <laughs> but now, now summer's here i'm gonna watch season two because maybe you know it's, it's chipped me up a bit but oh, yeah, it, I, I love that it's beyond I, I love great the, i love that so i love that show so much yeah yeah 
especially, especially the songs, the, the way he writes mm -hmm. these songs, where he just puts all these <laughs> words and explains the whole thing that's going on in these songs, and he has to be stopped from performing in these bars because he's giving away state secrets. And stuff. <laughs> that was, that was, there should have been more songs. I thought that was, that was really good. I, I felt really sad for him. I felt really sorry for him. Somebody give him a hug. Come on, what are you doing? <laughs> Don't send him to Iran. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And then uh, another thing I got into was, was Veep, which everyone saw millions of years ago. Um, I, I, I've got through three seasons of Veep as well, which I, I, I love. Um, uh, Armando Iannucci is one of my favorite uh, TV comedy writers. Um, but I, I can't watch it with my wife because it's just too fast. It's one of those things where even you've got subtitles. It's like, what are they talking about? What's this thing? What are they, what's going on? What are they, who's this guy? And there's too many things. So I have to watch that on my own. I, I've never watched Veep. I was, I did, um, you know how they have extras, you know, extras yeah. in the scenes. I was an extra on Veep. Um, oh, I was, really? I was Kansas City. They, they had this in the call sheet, Kansas City white trash. So, uh, so I was part of the Kansas City white trash on some other, some campaign <laughs> trail. Um, but they had good food on set. You know, you, you, it's just uh -huh. like you go there, you check in, they look at your wardrobe, and then you're like, where's, where's the coffee? Where's craft services? And then they drop. Then they drop you, and you sit there and be blurry. You be out of focus, yeah. and then they're like, yeah. "All right, have a good day." So. Yeah. Was that in Baltimore? Is it filmed in Baltimore? That was in Los Angeles. So uh -huh. um, the I don't know. I mean, Ju uh, Julia Louise Dreyfus wasn't on set that day, but the two other stars were. Uh, so uh -huh. whatever they were doing, I, I don't even I don't even know this. I don't know the story that well, but it's just I just remember being in a truck. With um with a bunch of like white people, and then they had um and then they they were shooting um, they were all shooting in one location. One was Kansas City, and the other was uh, Louisiana. So they had all old black people uh, in the truck. So when they would just do the turnaround, it was another location. But I had the most fun. Like I was I was just the dude sitting with the uh, with the old black men because they were just they had all the stories. I was like I'm eating lunch with these guys. <laughs> So it was, yeah, the white trash, the white, the cast white trash guy went over to the black table. So <laughs> yeah. Wow. I just, I just remembered that. I brought up a lot of memories. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for bringing up Veep. <laughs> What's um, so your first novel comes out and now we're in a pandemic. I mean, it's, it, it drives me nuts that my debut novelist and debut memoir friends can't go have the tours and can't, get together it's what we yeah, do yeah yeah i i was quite pleased because when I, whenever i have to do a, a book reading in public i'm just immensely i, I love doing the actual reading but I, unless 50 people turn up it's a failure so you know i'm sitting there waiting for people to come in and there's like six people and it's 10 past already and you think well shall we just do this well <laughs> can i just disappear <laughs> can i can i just not write any more books anymore so i don't have to do this so. So there, there's, there's a lot of that. You, you, you did stand up, didn't you? Did you used to do stand up? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. So I, I did a bit as well in like 2009, about 2012. And I really love the, uh, I, I love doing stand up when, when they laugh. You know? Right, exactly. The whole, thing of, the whole thing of sitting there at the start waiting for people to come in. And it was a small venue. At best, we'd get 55 in there. And it's like, well, it's 15. Well, 15 can be all right. You know, let's go with 15. Maybe some more will come in. And then you get a group of four come in. You're like, oh, yes, come on. We've got 19 people. This is this is a showtime, you know. Because you need so the energy of the room. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but sometimes you can have a great show with six people, and sometimes you can have a hundred people there and no one laughs, and it's just flat. You know, so it just yeah. depends on that. And that's the and that's the whole working out thing for uh, for doing stand up. It's, it's almost like I liked doing the shows to five people because then I had to like, okay, I have to adjust everything. Cause I'm not speaking to a crowd of a hundred. I'm speaking to five. Yeah. So now it's an intimate conversation. And now I have to not just, I can't just do the jokes. I kind of have to bring them in and get, and make it like intimate. Like we're all having a conversation in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. But it's, it's a fun thing because you have to think on your feet. So it's a very kind of uh live situation obviously but then then i but then i found that um if if you're a comic writer but you write books instead of doing stand-up then it's better because you don't have to listen to people not laughing at the end of the sentence you know you can write a joke and if it falls flat you never know you never know yeah exactly <laughs> so that, that was the whole thing like I'd, I'd write some really good material that i thought was really good and i'd tell it to the room the room would be like there's <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> nothing nothing doing you know so i'd have to go back to the old jokes that the tried and tested ones and i got bored of doing that i wanted to do different stuff all the time and really stupid stuff and in, in buenos aires doing expat um kind of expat comedy for for low for for english speakers th there's a limit to how much how how wide you can go how you know how yeah um how intellectual you can be the, the subjects you can you can cover it has to be kind of very general so so i quit I doing that I think that's why I got out of doing stand-up because I was tired of finessing the same joke and get, you know, I liked the art of getting the timing right and everything, but yeah. I started not to give a crap about the audience. In fact, they were like, they were, I, it was to the point where they were just, they were bugging me for being there because they can't think of this stuff themselves. And then I was uh, in the middle of a divorce when I was doing stand-up. So I'm just like, great. I'm helping all these people get laid tonight because I'm funny and these people aren't <laughs> funny, but they're going to laugh and go home and I'm just going to go home and sleep alone. And then um, that's when I was just, my disdain just became too much. The audience just pissed me off to no end. I'm like, why can't you just figure out how to do this yourselves? <laughs> yeah, I hated. I, I, I felt like Nirvana ref, ref, refusing to play Smells Like Teen Spirit. There was that kind of thing. Like, I, I could do a crowd pleaser. I could do this because I know this crowd is going to laugh at this joke. But if I'm going to do that joke. I'm going to sell a really obscure joke and then hate you all because you didn't laugh at it and, and go home and cry. <laughs> right. And, and I can judge you for not getting the, uh, the nuances of what I'm giving yeah. you as this joke because it, you're not thinking. Yeah. 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 It's like all you want is I, your I three... It's kind of a young man's game as well. I started doing it when I was about 36 and I was married. And it was kind of like, I just want, it was Tuesday night. I want to stay in and watch TV. I don't want to have to get a bus to another part of town and then hang around and get home at half past 12. Yeah. <laughs> this is too much for me. I can't do this anymore. Yeah. That, that, and part of that, it's like, I'm glad I did that because I was doing it in San Francisco. So I could just jump on the bus, get to, you know, everything was about 10 minutes away. I could be sitting in my underwear at 930 and know that I got to be somewhere at 10 o'clock and just, all right, get it on, get on the bus. And I'm there, walk in. And um, it's, I enjoyed that. Up. Yeah. But, but now I can never do it again. I just don't have yeah. the stamina and I don't yeah. care. I, it, I, takes, it takes a lot of energy. You have to really want to do it. Yeah. Just like writing. It's um like, uh, like I teach screenwriting and sometimes actors come in cause they're like, I want to write my own material. And, and yeah. so the, after 10 weeks, I know I've done my job when they walk up to me and they're like, 
oh my God, writing's hard. I'm not going to be able to write my own material. And I'm like, yeah, it's, you're putting your whole life into it to do well. So yeah. you're either going to act or you're going to write, but you kind of just, you know, it's like even being doing stand up comedy, you have to go out six nights a week. You have to try to get two or three gigs a night. And that yeah. that's, I don't want to go to that gym to work out. I like working out. I, I want to work out alone. <laughs> and it's very hard to make it as a living as well. And so generally you're working your day job and then you're like, you're, you're out three or four nights a week, but you're not really out. You're working there as well. So it's, it's, it's a real slog, isn't it? And then the other problem is, and I blame this on them, is you get the free drinks. So you get the free yeah. drinks and then and then they throw you 30 bucks or whatever to be in the showcase. And then you're like, well, I'm going to drink more than 30 bucks. And then and then I found <laughs> out my next days were ruined. It, it took me about a year to go, wait a second. I'm, I'm actually ruining myself the next day to do anything productive because I'm trying to get more drink money out of them when I need to just stop drinking and just, just take the 30 bucks, get one drink and leave. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, um, did, did you have any, any, in the, in the adaptation of confessions of a, of a teenage Jesus jerk, I've got it written down here. <laughs> did you have any input in the adaptation or did, uh, did you write the screenplay or did you just leave that to other people? Oh no, I wrote the screenplay. I wrote the screenplay. And I was on set every day as a story yeah. consultant. Yeah. And how, how did you, uh, how did you write the screenplay? How, and how, how difficult did you find it? Having written a novel and thought of it as a novel? Yeah, it was hard. It was really hard to adapt. Uh, I didn't realize how hard it was going to be um, just to get to what needs to be taken out, what needs to be changed, just to get the point across. Because you have to get the essence. You can't throw the whole story in there. So, yeah, uh, yeah. so that I just that's when I learned writing an original screenplay is actually easier than adapting a screenplay. That's when I was just like, wow, okay, this takes yeah. a lot. Um, I was I worked really hard on getting through all those revisions to try to get a really tight script, which was funny because, you know, it was, it was great to have um, Eric Stoltz directing it. And, and there was so much more shot. It's like, there was so much cut in the edit, but it all uh -huh. made sense. But I'm like, Oh my God, we lost like three days of shooting time. And I'm like, of course that shouldn't have made the film. Why didn't we see that in pre-production? It's just like, no, <laughs> we can't have two of those. We just need one. We, we, it's the essence is there. Just it's, it's all about just, oh man, just smash cut, smash cut, smash yeah, cut. You're yeah. so much needs to die. And it's, you know, yeah, yeah. they can't be in there just for the joke. It has to have like so many uh, things going on in just that one scene. And nah. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm currently in the process. I've just started doing this of, of trying to adapt escapes into yeah. uh, a TV series. There's, there's some interest from uh, an agent in the production company and we'll, we'll see how it, how it goes, but just, just to kind of, test myself to see what happened. I started, I started um, writing the screenplay and I find it very hard to do stuff without using a, 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 a voiceover because yeah. all, all the novel, all the novel is the interior narrative of these two narrators and not doing that. You know, sometimes they talk to the camera. I, I love um, Fleabag. So Flea, a lot of oh, Fleabag yeah. is cameras are making jokes, but you can't, you can't do that all the time because it looks like Fleabag or it looks like, you know, you, you're not really so it, I'm still trying to work out that of how, how to tell this story. Also, because they've got lots of good jokes. They've got lots of good lines that I've written in the novel. And I want them right. to go into the... I know. And those, and those, those are horrible because you got to kill those. But, but at the same yeah. time, it, 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 I feel like it makes me go, okay, how can I get that same punchline that I want in a different way, in a different scene, uh -huh. and still convey it? 
And then anything yeah. with voiceover on a script, I'm just like, how do I get this out? How do I get this out of voiceover and into scene? It's how can I get that? It's, I had to do some voiceover just because we had to get some internal thought, but it's, yeah. it's just like, I, I wanted, I'm always trying to get zero voiceover, you know, it's, it's yeah. so hard to get yeah. zero, but I yeah, just yeah. set I think, that. I, yeah. I think with the comedy, there's a bit more license with the comedy you've got, you know, the, 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 cause it's not so, uh, we're not being fucking Fellini here. You know, you, you, right. you can do you can do stuff with, with that. If Succession had a voiceover, it would be terrible. If you had somebody in Succession saying, "But Jay wasn't so pleased with his son, and he was going to tell him so," that that, that just doesn't work. But with with comedy, you do that, and this is a comedy moment. Yeah, exactly. It has to it has to play for the scene. Um, yeah. yeah, it's brutal. I, I it, but it's so much fun too. It's it's uh, just like just like writing the novel, just adapting a book to a screenplay. It's just like you have to adapt a book to a screenplay to learn how to adapt a book to a screenplay. It's yeah, yeah, because yeah. because uh, I had a TV. I had a TV production uh, company interested first, so they optioned it first. So I was working with them on the pilot and on yeah. um, the, the series arcs that we were going to do. And then that yeah. fizzled. And then I'm glad it fizzled because then there was a different angle where uh, we can go, look, let's do indie film. Let's stay very true to the book. Let's stay true to the character. We don't have yeah. to do a lot of character tweaks. So yeah. I felt like I learned a lot of everything I did wrong during the TV um, process. And then yeah. by the time I got to Eric, I was like, okay, now I know how to take notes. Now I kind of have a better idea what's going on. So sure, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot of fun. Well, congratulations on the novel. And I really want to see the mini series. I want to I see the TV yeah. show. Hopefully we'll, we'll have something to, to show you next year or the, the year after maybe. Sounds great. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Tony. Daniel Tunnard on Drinks with Tony. Check out his book, Escapes, a novel about Scrabble, out now on Unnamed Press. If you like this episode, you'll love next week's show featuring author and illustrator Paul Madonna. If you didn't like this episode, I apologize that you had to listen this far to get the apology. Hey, have a great week. I'll see you next Wednesday in your ears via podcast.